Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the Rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. All right. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn, open your Bibles, to the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 9. Tonight, I want to share with you information that, that I have been sharing, Messianic teachers have been sharing now for essentially a year. All of us have a sense about that we seem to be coming to the end of the ages. In the course of my lifetime, I have listened to a host of teachers. There is just a plethora of books that all have to do with the prophetic and within times. I have always tried to share with the brethren that there's a, a really fundamental question that you have to ask and answer before you can really get into the subject. And that is simply this. Do you believe that, the, that we are the final generation, that we are the last generation? If you believe that, then you should be very expectant. You should have a sense of anticipation and you should be paying attention to the specific prophecies spoken by the prophets and by the Messiah himself when he talked about the signs of the end. When Yeshua talked about, for example, that generation shall not pass away until all is fulfilled. Fundamentally, if you don't believe we're at the end of the ages, if you don't believe that you and I are part of the final generation, then the whole subject of eschatology is just a an interesting mental exercise. And you really shouldn't be putting that much energy into it. It's obviously purposed in the scripture to a final generation. Moses spoke to that final generation at the end of the Torah. And he specifically told there would be this generation at the end that's supposed to learn all the lessons of what the generation that came out of Egypt was supposed to have learned that really coming out of Egypt and going through the wilderness en route to the promised land is really a micro-prophetic teaching of what's going to be happening to the last generation. That the last generation is going to transition out of this world, out of this mortal existence, and we're going to go through this thing called a wilderness experience and great judgments of God, and ultimately we're going to step over into the messianic kingdom, which is the real promised land. And so the picture is given, and even Moses addresses to the final generation and exhorts the final generation, saying that you are going to return with all of your hearts. You're, you're going to be scattered in all of the nations. Whereas Israel was scattered in Egypt, the final generation is scattered in all of the nations, and you're going to return to the Lord, you're going to return to the promised land in a very similar exercise This what that generation did when they came out of Egypt. The, the new Antichrist is really the old Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh would say, I will not let the people go, we're going to have an Antichrist that's going to be very opposed to us and be in opposition to us and attempt to oppress us just as Pharaoh did with the children of Israel, our ancestors. Now that pattern is not just unique to what Moses said there at the end of the Torah. The recounting of the entire Exodus story in Psalm 78. 
even the recounting of the story, it specifically says that what happened in the ancient Exodus was that there's lessons for the generation to come. And it's referring to the final generation that is supposed to take the lessons of the great Exodus. And that's what's going to be applied. That's how we're going to get through this scenario at the end of the ages. That's what God's going to be doing, how we can be a part of it to be in that process. Jeremiah, specifically, speaking off into the future, when the Messiah is going to be bringing all of the scattered exiles of Israel, scattered all of the nations, he specifically says this in chapter 16, as well as in chapter 23. The day is coming when you're going to say the word Exodus, and you're not going to be referring to Egypt anymore. But instead, you will be referring to when God brings up his people from all of the nations of the world, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. So clearly, there's this incredible prophetic scenario set forth that's purposed specifically to the final generation. Daniel the prophet, when he received all of his visions of the end of the ages, he himself admitted he didn't understand them. And the Lord specifically told him it's not for him that it's to be concealed and sealed up until the appointed time. And there would be a day coming in that future when men of insight would give understanding to many. And it's talking about the people that would be there to do it. The book of Revelation in the very first part, says, I have written these things to my bondservants who will see these things shortly take place. A reference, again, to a group of people that will be at the end of the ages, this final generation. So before we get started, before I start to speak to you about any scenarios with regard to the end of the ages and so forth, you have got to ask this question in your own heart, Do I believe right now today that this is the final generation? Do I I have that confidence to believe that? Therefore, now it's my responsibility to understand all of these prophecies that's supposed to happen to the final generation. This is not an eschatology study. This is not where we're going to just go through the paperback prophecy books that we've all known throughout all of our lifetime. This is a serious subject. It doesn't apply to anyone except that last generation. It's just interesting information, unless you are that final generation. Now, before I begin any further this evening, I want to share with you personally that I am absolutely 100% convinced we are the final generation. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about that tonight, specifically and tell you all the reasons, but suffice it to say... If that was our topic tonight, it's now 7.25, I could talk on that subject for the next 12 hours until breakfast tomorrow morning, and I would not repeat myself and give you all the evidences of why I believe we're the last generation. That, well, (laughs) I don't know that Oswald has time. I I, I don't know. (laughs) But my point being is this. Uh, This is is a, a very important topic. And, 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 and I'm telling just right now, if, if that's not really resolved in your heart, go ask, answer, ask and answer that question first. Then this other stuff will start making sense. If it's still up in your air and so forth, this, this is going to sound like a lot of mumbo-jumbo that we're talking about. Because uh, you've got to believe this stuff for it to make sense. There is no 
new prophecy for me to share with you. Everything I'm going to share with you has to do with understanding the prophecies that already exist. I'm going to try to help you to understand the insight, quite honestly, that was not understood 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a generation ago. And I'm not saying it's new stuff. I'm going to let you be the judge as to whether or not you think it rings true and as to whether or not you think it's real. Because quite honestly, there's a reason why I'm convinced the understanding is now coming forth. It's in this generation that there's a group of people of which most of you are the audience that is that, who decide to return back to the teaching of Moses. And you've decided, wait, wait a minute, the world is not subdivided up into just Jews and Gentiles. That what Moses said there, as the scripture says, is for the, is for the native and is also for the alien and sojourner who travels together and believes in the God of Israel. And that through adoption and election in the faith, all of us get to be the descendants of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as a result, all that God promised to them, their promises to us. We are the, we're the heirs to all of this heritage that comes from our father Abraham. Now, while in the Christian faith we give lip service to that, we don't think that really means anything. You know, we're, we all believe in Jesus, but we don't think that what God promised Abraham is directly for us. Unless you finally go back to the teaching of Moses and you realize, wait a minute, I've been adopted into this family. I'm part of this. I'm of the seed of Abraham. What God promised to him and the fathers, it belongs to me. It's my heritage too. Therefore, what God commanded them to do, that's what God's commanded me to do. I'm not separate and distinct from Abraham when it comes to the kingdom. I'm part of the kingdom with him. And as a result, little things like you keep Sabbath and the feasts of the Lord. And it's on this point that I'm going to share with you a significant different way to see this major prophecy simply because you keep the feasts of the Lord. You see something you didn't see before. And let's go to Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to set the context of this uh, chapter. As you all know, Daniel was a prophet who was in Babylon. He was one of the exiles. He was there in the land, and you know some of the stories about his experience with uh, with his other brethren and King Nebuchadnezzar and, and him setting up a statue and demanding everybody to worship him and so forth. And those that were of the remnant of Judah refused to do so. Daniel was one of those men. But what specifically happens here in this chapter is that Daniel, in searching back in his faith, trying to make sure that he's established faith, he happened to read a prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet before the Babylonian exile that told Judah they were going to go into captivity with the Babylonians. And in particular, Jeremiah prophesied to Judah that you would go into into captivity for 70 years. Well, Daniel read that prophecy, and he's sitting in Babylon. And he happens to say, now Jeremiah said we'd be in captivity for 70 years. Let's count up the years. How many years have we been here in Babylon? And he suddenly realized, this, this prophecy is about to take place. We're approaching the end of the 70 years. So he gets very excited about this. The prophet has said, we'll be there. The day is coming when we're going to leave. Now, let me tell you how excited he got. He got so excited, I mean so devoted to this thing, that he made a vow and committed himself that every day, for three times a day, he opened up the windows in his, 
his abode, where he's at, facing toward Jerusalem, got down on his knees and prayed the confession of the sins of the of fathers of Israel so that God would receive us back at the conclusion of the 70 years. And in Daniel chapter 9, it recounts for us his actual prayer, his confession of the sins of Judah. Because you know what? He had this exciting idea that at the end of the 70 years, we're going to go back to Jerusalem, we're going to go back to the promised land, and the Messiah is going to show up. We're going to have the kingdom. I mean, what's to stop him from not thinking that? Jeremiah talked about the king coming. Didn't he talk about the, 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 a greater exodus? Didn't he talk about also you know, the bringing the remnant back? And one of the greatest prophecies of the Messiah is that he will bring the scattered exiles of Israel back from the nations. And by the way, Israel, the house of Israel, had already been scattered to the nations. Here's Judah and Babylon. Hey, this must be the end. You know, at the end of the seven years, we're all going back. The Messiah is going to bring us back. The Messiah is going to establish his kingdom. Praise the Lord, it's going to be the kingdom. Only, as we all know, no, God actually had some other bigger plans. What God's plan was that he was really going to do the work of redemption first before he did the work of restoration, that the Messiah would be coming to Israel and he would offer himself as the Lamb of God, fulfilling that promise of our father Abraham, do the work of redemption, he would depart. Oh, by the way, Judah would ultimately get scattered to the nations by the Romans. And that, as the prophecy said, the Messiah at the end of the ages, at the last generation, would bring all the scattered exiles back from all of the nations including some of Judah. That was the really big plan. Now, Daniel is operating on the information that he has. He's very excited about this. And uh, he's, he's really fixated on the kingdom, you know, that the Messiah is going to return and establish the kingdom. Well, as it turns out, in the course of what we hear in chapter 9, is that the angel of the Lord comes to him and tries to explain to him, Daniel, it's not quite going to work out that way. Yes, the 70-year thing is coming and so forth. But if you really want to know about the kingdom, you want to know about the prophecies of when the king really will come and bring the scattered exiles and establish his kingdom, let me give you that prophecy. With those words, let me read to you what was said to Daniel. And it's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. I'm sure you've heard these words before. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. A lot of information was given to Daniel that would explain what would be happening at the end, before the Messiah came and established his kingdom. Now, like I said, when I began to read this, I'm certain that you've heard these verses before. 
And the reason why I'm pretty certain about that is no one has ever taught end-time Bible prophecy without making reference to these verses and the book of Revelation. The reason why is because there's a phrase in here about the abomination of desolation. And when the Messiah himself was answering the question, what will be the sign of the end and your coming? Yeshua specifically told his disciples, refer to the prophecy of Daniel about the part about the abomination of desolation. He said, for then there will be great tribulation. And immediately after the days of the tribulation, you will see the sign of the Son of Man coming, and he will return, and the kingdom will be established. So anyone who is trying to understand the whole concept of the end times, what actually happens right at the end to the final generation, it has something to do with this prophecy that I just read you. And here is the tricky part of it. No question that verse 24 is a description of the Messianic kingdom. There are seven things specifically stated in there that it is the definition of the Messianic kingdom. When the Messiah returns and establishes kingdom, there will be a finish to transgression. There will be an end to sin. There will be, to, there will be atonement for iniquity. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in Vision and prophecy will be sealed up, and the most holy place will be anointed. That's the definition of the Messianic kingdom. Now, what's really kind of fascinating here about trying to address that is, this whole prophecy has been presented in a classic Hebrew way. However, nobody has ever interpreted it that way. They, they interpret it in a classic Greek way. And we who are Messianics, I'm certain that you've heard previous teachers tell you that one of the things you've got to come to terms with is you've got to stop thinking like a Greek and start thinking Hebrew. Because there's a whole new perspective on how you see things and understand the Scripture. What I intend to show you tonight is the Hebrew way of reading these verses and understanding. And I guarantee you it is dramatically different than what we may have heard from all of the previous prophecy teachers with regard to it. Before I get into that, though, we've got to define a particular word. And the word is weeks. Traditionally, the way this word has been defined is it means sevens. You know, a week means seven. It's a sheva uh, to us. There's seven days in a week, and so it naturally means the number seven to us. A week of days is seven days. It's the same thing in our in our own culture and language, where if I was talking about thousands of dollars, I'd say to you, well, uh, he had ten grand. Now, you all know the word grand actually means thousands. So it's just a, a word that represents a certain number. Well, in the same way, this word weeks means sevens. And so what they've done is most people who've tried to understand and interpret this prophecy, they said it was 70 of those. So what we're dealing with is 70 times 7. This is a prophecy about 490. That's what you've all been told. And so various, and if you read down a little bit further, doesn't it talk about something about the Messiah being cut off and, and about Jerusalem uh, being destroyed, the city being destroyed? Those are historical events. We all know about that. We have the testimony of Yeshua. He came there in the first century. We think maybe he died around 33 A.D., 
And then Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. It's part of Roman history. And they see that and they're saying, okay, well, what we've got to do is we've got to figure out in history how did this, and, and I'll tell you, they just jumped to it, 490 years. They just get there real quick. Where's the 490-year thing in the history? There was something about a decree. But then there's also this thing about this last week. So they separate out a prophecy called the last seven years, and they're really trying to figure out where's the 483 years that happened first. Seven years is reserved for the last, and let's have a prophecy of 483 years. So when did we see a decree that led to the Messiah being cut off and led to the destruction of Jerusalem? So they take 70 A.D., they take 33 A.D., and they count back 483 years, and they're trying to find some historical decree that would explain this prophecy. I, I, let me tell you, I have been through this. I have watched other men go through this. There were like four different decrees back in that time frame that had to do with some things with Israel and that we have in the history. None of them line up. Not one of them. And I've had prophecy books where I've had teachers try to tell me, oh yeah, it lines up beautifully. It's a perfect prophecy. And No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And stop saying that it does. Anybody, secular people, anybody can go back and do the research for themselves. It doesn't work. There's not something right about that. Furthermore, let me tell you something else. When it said that Jerusalem would be rebuilt with plaza and moat, see there verse 25? Jerusalem would be rebuilt with plaza and moat. Never in the history of Jerusalem has there ever been a plaza and a moat in Jerusalem. Until in this generation. In fact, it really didn't come about except in the last 20 years. Jerusalem has a plaza and a moat now. In fact, if you go on a tour to Israel, I'm sure your tour host is going to take you down there to the Kotel, the Western Wall. And that big open area they've now opened up, it's called the plaza. And just to the south of that, they're going to take you to another very famous tourist place. It's called the Jerusalem Archaeological Park, and it's called the moat. It's the dig. You see, a moat is when you dig down along a wall and you build a trench. And there's a very famous trench in Jerusalem, the archaeological park, where they've dug down in the wall. And in the course of my ministry, I have taken tour groups over and I have watched them each successive time digging more, digging more, digging more. They're down to the same streets that Yeshua walked with his disciples. I saw the big old stones that had hit that street, punched holes in the street, that the Romans had knocked off of the Temple Mount. They, they've uncovered all of that stuff and lifted it out and set it up again and restored the street at the bottom, and it's called the moat. Oh boy, the Palestinians really do not like this place. In fact, they're trying to claim that all this digging down there by that wall is weakening the foundations of the entire Temple Mount and the Jews are really trying to knock the Dome of the Rock and the Hoska, uh, the Alaska Mosque you know, right off the thing and have it collapse. And um, there was a big controversy about this several years ago in which the Israeli government finally said, well, we've got to get somebody in here to verify this and calm the Palestinians down and the Arab world down because they think we're going to destroy everything up on the Temple Mount. And so they got this Turkish archaeologist to come over and actually study exactly how they're reinforcing it to make sure that it's all shored up properly and so they can continue to do the dig. And uh, that was just a couple of years ago. 
And then that dirty bird came out and decided to do something against Israel. And he said, oh, yeah, they're weakening it. And they're really causing a big problem. That, boy, that backfired. And they had to bring in other people and, and so forth. But today, in Jerusalem, if you go on a tour, I can take you to the plaza and the moat. That's a term about Jerusalem that exists today. When Daniel penned these words, there's never been a Jerusalem with a plaza and moat until in this generation. Never before. So anybody trying to explain this prophecy about some historical event, ladies and gentlemen, there was no Jerusalem with a plaza and moat at any time in history that can substantiate that. That is a modern event. Well, my goodness, that means that, means that uh, these verses are all about something that happens to the final generation. So let's go back to this word weeks. Yes, it means sevens. Let me actually show you the actual Hebrew word. It's this word right here. Shavuim. This is uh, the word, that, the same word that we use for the Feast of Weeks. Shavuot. The only difference between the two is this is the masculine gender. This is the feminine gender. Why are the biblical holidays all in the feminine gender? Because they're all gifts from the bridegroom to the bride. They are pre-gifts to us. The Sabbath is, is feminine gender. It's the, it's the Sabbath is the queen of days. It's not a masculine gender. And by the way, in Hebrew, everything has a masculine or feminine gender. Even a table has a masculine or a feminine gender, depending on how it's used. Even inanimate objects. But in particular, the holidays are definitely in the feminine gender. So the Feast of Weeks is Shavuot. But what if I wanted to make a prophecy about a whole series of, and by the way, Shavuot happens once a year. It's um, the day after the seventh Sabbath, following the Feast of First Fruits after Passover. It's, we call it Pentecost. It's 50 days from the counting of the Feast of First Fruits. If I wanted to do a plural version, I wanted to, I want to tell you a prophecy at about a whole bunch of Shavuots, how would I write that in Hebrew? Like that. I would change the gender so that you would understand that I, a male, am now trying to explain about a plural version of this. Now, the Feast of Weeks wasn't too long ago. I mean, here, for us. Not too long ago, back here, just recently, we observed Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Proclamation. By the way, this verse 24, you know what this is? This is a proclamation being made by the Messiah. And guess when these words are going to be spoken by the Messiah when he establishes the kingdom? At the first Shavuot in the kingdom. That's what that prophecy is. Now, we know the Messiah comes back in the fall holidays. But that first year of the kingdom, what happens? Well, he comes back. We have the day of the Lord, the resurrection. We all celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, Zechariah says, first thing we're going to do is celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, time goes around. We have the Passover with the Lord. Did not the Messiah say, I look forward to having the Passover with you in the kingdom? Didn't he say, I'm going to drink the cup of joy with you, the cup of praise, when we're in the kingdom? Well, it keeps right on going around, right around to the Feast of Weeks. And guess what the Messiah is going to do at the Feast of Weeks of the first year in the kingdom? He's going to proclaim the end of iniquity and sin and transgression and usher in everlasting righteousness. A pretty powerful event, by the way. 
just as powerful as that day commemorates the giving of the Torah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There is a future Shavuot when the Messiah is going to make an incredible proclamation in the kingdom. And at that Shavuot, that is that joyous prophecy that's being given to us in verse 24. Actually, what Daniel was given was the Feast of Shavuot. What's going to be happening at the Feast of Shavuot in the kingdom? It's this incredible proclamation. And he's given the seven things the proclamation will be. But then what he did was he said, there's actually 70 of these decreed for your people. 70 Shavuot. With the 70th one, you're in the kingdom. So that would mean that the really important Shavuot, leading up to it, there would only be 69 of them. So what does the prophecy proceed to give you? A description of the previous 69 of them. And tells you what's going to be happening that leads to the kingdom. Now before I go any further, I want to put a little word picture to this that kind of will explain what I'm going to do. When I said to you, I'm going to, I'm going to show you this in a Hebrew way. I can actually make a very simple scenario for you, too. For those of you who have been part of my ministry, there's been many times where I'll tell you a little story about events of my life, my family, my children, my wife, things, real-world experiences that illustrate certain spiritual principles I want you to understand. And uh, the Lord has given me an absolutely incredible example in the case of my daughter. My daughter is a school teacher. She just finished teaching school fifth grade. Six years in a row. You know that program, Are You Smarter in Your Fifth Grade? Fifth grader, you know that program? She's the teacher of the fifth graders, so she's really smart. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? She's really smart. Because <laughs> she's the one that teaches the fifth graders. Not only is she really smart just from that standpoint, but while she was going through college, and I am a very, very proud papa of her, love her dearly. She's my firstborn. She went through college, five years of college, to get her degree with a 4.0 GPA. She's never made anything in a school other than an A in any class she's ever taken. Not bad for being homeschooled. Not bad at all. She was the class marshal. And I will tell you that the day she graduated from college, yours truly here, there was no father more proud than me there. I'm, I'm telling you, it's a day that is marked in my life. Okay? Very pleased very proud of my daughter, love her dearly, and it's a very, very special moment for me. Now, you're all looking at me and going, okay, Dad, we got it, okay. Uh, but that's all right. Now, I'm going to tell you how she got there. I'm, we're going to start with that event, the day she graduated with the class marshal, wore all the honor robes, the whole bit, first one announced by the president of the university, you know, the whole bit. That was a spectacular day. What preceded that? Well, there was five years of college. And before that, there was 12 years of being taught, a certain number of years of homeschooling, some other things and training, all the way back to when she was before preschool, when her mother sat her down and taught her how to read before she ever went to school. My daughter knew how to read before she ever went to school and kindergarten and so forth. She could read her little golden books by herself. Okay? Now, I, what did I do? I started with this great event that's very important to me. And I'm telling you the things that precede it. That's a Hebrew way of explaining something wonderful that takes place. And that's what Daniel has done for you. He has started with the kingdom, with the proclamation of the Messiah. 
the thing he's most looking for. And now in the prophecy, he's told you the things that will precede it that will get you there. So what does he say? He says, well, first of all, you are to know and discern that from the issuing a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until my Messiah Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then it will be built. So what has he just said? He said, here is the Messiah Prince. This is the kingdom. This is what we're really getting to. That's what's important. He said, what precedes it? Something called seven. What precedes that? Something called 62. What precedes that? A decree for Jerusalem in which that a plaza and a moat are built. Now, if these things that we're counting here, these 70 things that we're counting, and this is the 70th one over here, this prophecy explaining the 69 that leads to it. Do you see the numbers fit? He's telling you what precedes it. What's he giving you a prophecy of? He's saying the prophecy of the final generation and the final set of the Feast of Weeks that leads to the proclamation of the Messiah and the kingdom. That's a kind of an interesting prophecy, but you know what? It lines up with exactly what we read in Daniel chapter 9 because he thought the 70-year prophecy that Jeremiah had given about being in Babylon, he thought that was the one that led to the kingdom. Daniel, it's not the 70-year prophecy that Jeremiah gave you. It's a 70-week prophecy that will lead to the Messiah kingdom. There are 70 specific Shavuots that will happen. The 70th one will be the kingdom. There are 69 that preceded, and they're subdivided as a period of 7 and a period of 62. Now, he goes a little bit further because he gives some other things that precedes this. In fact, you can look at that right here in verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Which way am I counting and giving you this prophecy? Backwards from the way you think as a Greek. I'm going from right to left. I'm taking a future event way out into the future, starting with it, and then... It's all future at this point to Daniel, but I'm doing the things that precede it or I'm counting backwards in the sequence of giving you the prophecy. So you'll know all the things that precede the coming of the kingdom, which, by the way, that's the real intention of the prophecy is so that you can see the day approaching so you can see when the kingdom is coming. So he's laid this all out and he says, by the way, beyond the 62, counting this way after the 62, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have the Messiah cut off and Jerusalem destroyed. Now, that's 33 AD. That's a fact. Hmm, Jerusalem destroyed. That's 70 AD. Now they're starting to happen in time sequence the way a Greek would see it because the prophecy was given to us as what proceeds, but now we're looking at it. We historically can now see it starting to happen in time. And all of this stuff has already taken place. And guess what about this? When was there a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem with plaza and moat? Ladies and gentlemen, that was in 1948. You ever heard of the UN decree that established the Jewish homeland? The state of Israel declared itself a decree 
And they insisted that Jerusalem has to be part of Israel. Ben-Gurion said it. If there's no Jerusalem, there's no Israel. And there was a war of independence to make sure Jerusalem was considered in the land and the state of Israel. Well, how many, how many Shavuots have we had since the state of Israel in 1948 happened to come? Last year, it was 62. This year, this last Shavuot, it was 63. Whoa. If this theory is correct, if we're understanding this prophecy correct, and we really believe we're in the last generation, here is a prophecy about the final 70 years for the last generation. The thing that seems to mark it and get it going is the modern state of Israel and something to do with the city of Jerusalem. By the way, we have seen this modern city of Jerusalem built with plaza and moat, and we have watched in the course of this generation, since the days I was born and it was along with the rest of you baby boomers, we just saw last year the 62nd one completed, and we, this year we just saw the 63rd completed. If this is correct, we're in year one of the final seven. Remember, this is a prophecy to show you how quickly is the kingdom coming. Now, you have heard many prophecy teachers talk about a final set of seven years. But they've always told you the final set of seven years is the 70th. It's not the 70th. There is a final set of seven years. In fact, the prophecy goes on to say it. And in the one week, this final seven, something happens in the middle of those seven years. It says that's when the abomination of desolation takes place. And then there's a whole bunch of other prophecies kick in where the Messiah talks about, oh my goodness, you know, when that starts, <laughs> then know this, there's going to be three and a half years of great tribulation, and then I'm the, the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory in the days immediately after the tribulation of those days. So here we are, seven years with a three and a half year point. Here's the abomination of desolation. This is when the Messiah comes. And we really don't know what that is, but it's the start of the seven years count, which is the prophecy has told us to look for it. It specifically told us how to look for it. Now, most of you, I was, I was told, well, that's when the rapture happens. Okay? Pre-tribulation rapture, pre-seven-year rapture, boom, we all get zapped out of here, and then the rest of the Jews in the world, they have to deal with all that other stuff that's going to go in the prophecy and so forth. Ladies and gentlemen, if there really was a pre-tribulation rapture, it should have happened a year ago. should have happened a year ago. It didn't happen. We're still here. Okay? Now, this is an interesting idea. But there's also something else that's given to us about that seven years. It says that associated with the start of the seven is an agreement. It also has a profound thing to do with this. And so the question has already been, well, what exactly is this agreement? Let me read the exact verse to you. Verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And the other different versions will actually use the word agreement. Covenant means agreement. And so a lot of prophecy teachers have said, well, first of all, we have the rapture, and then the Antichrist makes this nice agreement with Israel and the rest of the nations. He acts real nice for three and a half years, and then after the, the, the middle three and a half years comes, he acts real nasty, and it's real bad. And people have been told that this tribulation thing is so terrible that you don't want to be around for this, okay? And that's been the dominant American 
evangelical teaching about the end times. How many of you read Late Great Planet Earth? Okay. How many of you read 88 Reasons Why Christ Comes Back in 1988? How many of you were paying attention to this last May when Mr. Camping said, hey, by the way, this is when the rapture is coming? You know, none of it's come true. It's flawed. It's fundamentally flawed. But a lot of people believe it. And as it's shaped everybody's thinking about these prophecies about the final seven years, ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you quickly, the Bible doesn't describe any time a seven-year tribulation. It does describe a final set of seven years, but it describes a great tribulation of the last three and a half years. So what does the Bible say about this first three and a half years? The Messiah defined it. He said it's the beginning of sorrows. There would be a whole lot of interesting things going on in the world. Earthquakes, pestilences, diseases, wars, rumors of wars, all this. This is not the end, is not yet, he said. This is the beginning of sorrows. Then he said, the sign of the end is this. When you see that, that's the sign of the end. Then know there will be a great tribulation. And in the days immediately following, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. So he described this first period as the beginning of sorrows. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to current events over the course of the last year, but it's not been working out so real good for the world. You know what I'm trying to say? I've been involved in prophecy teaching for a long time, but I've got to tell you, even I am stunned seeing something right now. I, I wasn't expecting this. There are more people talking about the end of the ages, the end of the world as you know it, right now than ever in the history of the world. And by the way, the people that are doing the most talking about it are not believers of the Bible. The beginning of sorrows has hit the world, and even unbelievers know it and have a foreboding sense of something terrible is going to happen. How many of you heard about the concerns over the December 2012? You know, we got comets coming, we got the Mayan calendar ending in time, and we got a whole bunch of stuff. Um, we, got, we got people really wound up about this. Not believers, unbelievers. They're all wound up about this. They're all talking about the end of the world. In fact, they're talking about more about 2012 than Christians are talking about the second coming. That's the part even I didn't think would be happen. The world has this foreboding sense of what is getting ready to happen. Now the prophecy says that there's going to be a strong delusion that will come upon the world. Part of this strong delusion is going to set the stage for the greatest falling away of faith ever in the history. As we get closer and closer to 2012, a whole lot of people are going to buy in on this thing. And let me go ahead and just tell you, December 21, 2012, is going to come and go, and it won't be the end of the world. Let me go ahead, I'm, I'm on record right now. It's not going to be the end of the world. And everybody's going to be, it's like one too many times we cried wolf. And they're all going to feel foolish, they're all going to feel silly. You thought Y2K, people felt a little weird after, wait till you see this 2012 thing. And very shortly thereafter, it's very possible the abomination of desolation will actually take place. And then you and I are going to stand up and say, that's the sign of the end. And the whole world set up says, oh, don't talk to us about that subject anymore. We already went through that 2012 thing. Don't talk to us about another biblical sign thing. Do you see how the devil has set the world up? And we're going to see the whole thing. Now here we set what appears to be in the first year of the final seven. And very few Christians have any idea about it. 
Very, very little understanding of this. This um, last May, President Obama stood up and made a major policy speech about the Middle East. And he declared that Israel and the Palestinians should go back to the 1967 borders and make an agreement. Well, let me give you a little history on that. The 1967 lines are the original 1949 lines of the armistice lines from the War of Independence. He doesn't want to take Israel back to June of 1967. He wants to take Israel back to when Israel was first established as a nation. Because I am here to tell you that the Palestinians, they don't want to have a two-state solution. They want to get rid of Israel. In fact, they have said the only reason why we're looking for statehood is to just change the platform in which that we can perpetuate and continue the conflict with Israel. Now, all this talk you've been hearing about trying to get down and have a peace agreement, a peace settlement, and so forth, the prophecy says anybody that messes with Jerusalem is like drinking a cup of poison. It's like lifting a stone that will injure you. Okay, and nobody has pulled it off, and nobody will pull it off. However, what is happening in our world today, and when the president made that statement, something incredible took place. And people in the world know what it is that took place. I've been tracking this for a long time. Other brethren have been tracking this. When he made that statement, it's like you just drove west from here, and you just went over the Continental Divide. And you all know that if you get on the other side of the Continental Divide, a raindrop that falls in the mountain there goes to the Pacific Ocean. You stand on this side of it, a raindrop that falls here goes to the Gulf of Mexico. He crossed over a threshold, and now it is inevitable, and it will be mandated on Israel, the division of the land of Israel. It is the division of the land of Israel that God states by the prophet Joel, chapter 3. This is the reason we're going to have a day of the Lord. The land of Israel doesn't belong to the Jewish people. It belongs to the God of Israel. It was promised to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we got kicked off of it because we wouldn't obey the Lord. The Lord still maintains the reign and the superiority over the land of Israel. To this day. To this day. The only people who've ever been able to live on that land successfully and be at peace are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anybody else has got trouble. That's the way it's always been. That's world history. You think this is going to be a solution in the Middle East? That we divide the land of Israel, the Palestinians are here, the Jews are over here. You think this is going to work? It has never worked in history. And the Palestinians right now today will tell you for a fact, we're not looking for a peace agreement. We're not doing this for a peace agreement. But the Obama administration, the Europeans, and the quartet, they keep selling this story to the rest of the world while we're trying to come to a peace agreement. Negotiated peace agreement. There's never going to be peace. I'll tell you what's really being set up. They're backing Israel into a corner, and they're going to force Israel into it, and the UN is basically going to mandate this to happen. Our president uh, has to weigh a decision here in July, whether or not he's going to veto the Palestinian application for UN membership leading to statehood. Now, he's basically told everybody, 
in a very interesting terms. We're opposed to that, we'll use our veto power and so forth, but the president has never yet stated absolutely that's what he's going to do. Let me just give you my own personal study of our president. You may have your own. You have your own. This guy doesn't keep his word. He doesn't keep his word to his most loyal supporters. He certainly doesn't keep his word to people that he doesn't particularly care about. There is no logical reason for me to believe that President Obama will veto the Palestinian application for UN membership at the Security Council this July 15th. And by the way, the due date for this decision is August 9th. From July 15th to August 9th, this must be decided. Any of you aware of what August 9th is this year? It's the 9th of all. Historically, the worst day in the history of Israel since Israel left Egypt. Very bad things happened to Israel on this day. The Palestinians, if they're able to get through that, are going to go to the UN General Assembly in September. And in late September, this decision will come before the UN General Assembly. Specifically about September 29th is what it's on the schedule. What date on the Hebrew calendar is September 29th? Rosh Hashanah. Sound a trumpet in Zion, for the day of the Lord is near. Everything is falling right into every sign we as a Hebrew believer should be paying attention to that should be telling us something ominous is taking place. I submit to you that I think there's a very good reason to believe that the agreement that's being talked about in this year is the same agreement being talked about in Daniel 9.27. There's also one other thing we're looking for. And if we have this, this will probably nail this baby down. A war. A regional war in the Middle East. We know something dramatic has got to take place here very soon. Because before you can have an abomination of desolation event, which is an altar operating on the Temple Mount, that has the daily sacrifice, and for it to be shut down, that's the abomination of desolation. You've got to change the political landscape in Jerusalem, particularly the Temple Mount, so that the Jews can get up there and build an altar. Now, I'm sure you heard the news more than a year ago. The Jews have assembled the material for the great altar in Jerusalem. They've gone out and picked out all the stones, got all the mortise materials. The materials are in Jerusalem today, and according to Heim Richman, the spokesman for the Temple Institute, as soon as Israel has control or access to the Temple Mount themselves, they will restart building the altar within 15 minutes. That's a direct statement from him. That's a prerequisite. If you see the altar get rebuilt in Jerusalem, you know the day it gets shut down is the start of the Great Tribulation. That's the sign Yeshua told us to pay attention to. All of those events... Everything that's happening in Israel today is all suggesting that the events that we're now watching should be happening in a very short time of a few short years. Where are we at? Well, a few short years from that event. This is kind of interesting, don't you think, guys? It gives you a whole new perspective about where we're at. This would maybe explain why our country seems to be going to hell in a handbasket and our dollar is going <laughs> right down the toilet. Because the world is dramatically getting ready to change and flip up with hooves up and everybody's going to go crazy and they're going to be looking for somebody that's got a solution. And that's how the Antichrist is going to seize power for the final period of time.
the, the days are upon us. Now, in my generation, and those that are like me, we all heard our parents tell us, and my grandparents tell us, that if we ever saw the events that were happening in our day, the things that are happening in our nation, our nation is on the verge of collapse. Our nation is on the verge of collapse. So is the whole Western world. So are all the other nations of the world. It's like what the prophecy said about the Great Tribulation when it comes. It's a time of distress to the world as the world has never seen before. Even unbelievers can sense this is coming. We're not talking about people that believe and talk about Bible prophecy. Interestingly enough, people that know about Bible prophecy, they're not talking about any of this because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit their theory. But as I've walked you through, it does line up with some things that are taking place here. I have a chart that kind of depicts this whole thing. Let me summarize what I'm sharing with you this evening with this chart. The prophecy of Daniel is a prophecy of 70 Shavuot. It's a prophecy about the final generation. It says there's a period of seven, a period of 62, and a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that these are the things that precede Messiah Prince in his kingdom. This little chart here is depicting this final seven. So it's a detail that comes down. In the first three and a half years, we have certain things that we should be looking for. A covenantal agreement that has to do with the dividing of the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And that is what is being discussed this year. It's also talking about the prophecies of a regional war. Though, by the way, I guarantee you that every analyst in the world says we're on the brink of a regional war in the Middle East. Exactly. In fact, the fact that it hasn't happened is the miracle part. And by the way, you do know that in Lebanon, Hezbollah has prepared 50,000 missiles pointed at Israel. Hezbollah has another 20,000 and the big ones, the Scuds and, the, and the, those ones, with chemical weapons. How many Jews have to die before Israel will say enough is enough? How many? 5,000? 10,000? 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. How many Jews have to die in Tel Aviv being killed by rockets and missiles before Israel? And by the way, the God of Israel says, enough is enough. That's what that prophecy is all about. That prophecy says that Israel is going to come to the brink of extinction. They'll be invaded from the north. They'll be invaded into the mountains of Israel, the Sumerian and Judean mountains. And only this time, God really does show up for the fight. And when this fight is over with, there is Israel left, and there's no more enemies of Israel left. The surrounding enemies are gone. And he says he brings fire from heaven to destroy them with. In fact, Israel will have to go through special burial procedures for seven months just to gather up their bones. And it says they're going to be destroyed by being consumed by a fire to where that all that's left of them is the bones of them. They'll be dead in place. You do know that Israel has in their arsenal the most sophisticated nuclear weapons in the history of the world. Did you know that? They have perfected and built the neutron warheads. Low blast, high radiation, high dissipation weapon can be used tactically. That means in a small area. If Israel thinks they're going down, they think they're finally going to be overrun. They've said, no more Masada. And I'm telling you right now as a former military logistician, that if Israel is being pounded with missile attacks of the numbers that the enemy has, it'll shut the entire country down and they'll be within days of their demise. 
They must stop those missiles. The only way to stop them is destroy the launchers. The anti-missile defenses they're doing, it's for onesies, twosies. That's for a couple of missiles that come across. The Iron Dome, the aero anti-missile system that Israel has developed, they're trying to build a weapon that will do the job, but it'll be easily overwhelmed just by sheer numbers. And to stop those launchers, it means that Israel must find a way and go and destroy where they're at. They only have one weapon that will do it. I don't know about you, how do you feel about living in a world where we're throwing around tactical nuclear weapons? Let's go back to 1945 when we dropped two A-bombs. You know what it did to the world? Freaked us out. It was so freaky, we're building bomb shoulders in America, you know, in the backyard. I'm playing duck and cover in the elementary school to a siren. All that stuff was stupid. There wasn't anybody that would have ever survived a nuclear weapon that had gone off doing that stuff. But it, that's what we used to do because we were so freaked out. Wait till you live in a world where there's been a couple of ta tactical nuclear weapons. Live in that world and I'll show you a bunch of freaked out people. By the way, that would be completely consistent with the Great Tribulation. When people become lawless and civilization just breaks down. And this is a crazy place to live in. And desperate people do desperate things. And it's going to come down to kind of fish and cut bait time as to whether or not you believe in God or not. All of that is potentially right here. In fact, I'm not making the prophecy that says this is going to happen. I'm here to tell you the analysts, the people that don't believe in the Bible, they say it's getting ready to happen. I don't have to prophesy anything. I'm telling you, the governments in the world are saying this is getting ready to happen. You want to know why all the governments are, we've got to get a peace agreement, we've got to get a peace agreement. Because they know how, what this powder keg will look like when it goes off. And they know there's people over there are crazy enough to do this. The Arabs, the Palestinians, they kill each other more than anybody else in the world. And they think that the quicker they kill each other off, you know, the quicker they get to go to heaven and have the 70 virgins. You know all about that. Okay? They just don't know that that's 70 nuns waiting for them up there. Okay. So it's not going to quite turn out the way they thought. I needed to lighten you guys up a little bit. <laughs> if everything's on track, then we should see this middle event coming up that would lead us into what's called the Great Tribulation. And that's what this chart does, is it explains the fi final three and a half years down here. The start of the Great Tribulation is the cessation of the altar, the setting up of the image of the Antichrist, the Antichrist comes to power, and now the prophecies are very specific. The Great Tribulation will be 1,290 days. Blessed is he, though, who sees the 1,335th day. Blessed is he who gets to see the Messiah and the kingdom. And then it says there's a series of other prophecies of other dimensions and so forth that takes place in here, and great events that take place in, in the judgments of the Great Tribulation. But it all starts right here, which is what the Messiah said. This is the sign of the end. That's what we're looking for. So first of all, before we leave tonight, before we ever conclude this evening, let's answer this question. What is the sign of the end? It is the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. It's not an earthquake. It's not California falling into the ocean. It's not a tsunami. It's not a meltdown of nuclear power plants. Okay, it's not a war. It's that specific prophecy. That's what we focus on with regard to the end. Well, the real question for us, since this is future, 
How close are we to that? Well, we have some prophecies, if we understand this time count, about the final generation that seem to suggest we're quickly and close, closing in on that. That's the reason why we're paying very close attention to this agreement. That's the reason why we're paying attention to the events taking place in Jerusalem with regard to the Palestinians and the Arabs, and particularly the enemies to the north, because that's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 was talking about, certain enemies to the north that would be doing this invasion. And oh, by the way, in the midst of all of this, we also have other teachers saying, oh, no, this is not it. So you got your whole mix, you know, you're going to have to make your own judgment. You're going to have to make your own decision. You're going to have to observe with your own eyes. Read the scripture for yourself. Make a judgment. Do I think we are the final generation? And do we see the events that are leading to the final days and to the great tribulation that is to take place? That is essentially what I wanted to share with you tonight. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening and thank you for this time with these brethren. Lord, this is a lot of information to share with a group of people. And this is very sobering information, Lord. I would pray by your Holy Spirit that you would strengthen the heart and the mind of every person that's in this room. Let them not be filled with fear, Lord. Let them be filled with the awe of your great plan. And also, Lord, let them come to terms with, be reconciled to your wonderful love that you have for each one of us, individually and personally, for our families. Thank you, Lord, that you have said that we will be much different from Noah and Daniel and Job who went through the different events of deliverance then. That you are going to empower us as the tribulation saints to also bring forth sons and daughters with us. And so that rather than just being a few that are delivered, we will be referred to as the tribulation saints which no man could number. And that there will be a whole bunch of us, Lord that will be a part of your great salvation. Even as you have said to us, Lord, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and shall be delivered, for there shall be survivors in Mount Zion. Lord, we call upon you right now, even before the days of the Great Tribulation. I ask you, O God, deliver every person in this room from those days. Protect us, keep us, help us with our families, Lord. And cause your deliverance of your people to be an incredibly wonderful thing. Even as Moses prayed to you and said, O Lord, treat us with grace and prove to the nations how great a God you are. Deliver us, O God, and prove yourself to the nations of the world how great a God you are. Help us and deliver us, O God. We pray this to you, Lord, not for our sake although we would benefit from it. We pray it, Lord, to bring honor and glory to you and your kingdom. We pray this just as Daniel did. Help us, God, to understand the days we live in and how we're coming to the end of our captivity in the nations and you're getting ready to take us back to the kingdom. Help us to understand it well, Lord. We pray and ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. If you would... Please open your Bible to John chapter 1. Hold your finger there at verse 35. I'm going to come back to the scripture in just a little bit. I want to share just a little bit of my testimony with you. And I think some of the things I may share you may find in common with yourselves in your own personal spiritual journey. When I was a young boy of the age of about seven years old, my maternal grandmother, her name was Nellie Mae Needham, 
was the person who had the most dramatic impact on me from a spiritual standpoint. She was the one who told me that Jesus was the Son of God, was God, was the Savior. She was the one who sat down with me at night when we'd go to bed, and I learned how to pray for the very first time. She actually taught me how to pray to God. And she was a very, very devout woman. She was a member of then in that community of the Church of Christ. I don't know if you've known any brethren like that. But the Church of Christ, let's just go ahead and just summarize it. Some of the most conservative uh, people you ever find that believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible. And, all, and I, I was exposed to the things of God primarily through her. She was the one that was the first person that ever took me to church. And uh, I got my first exposure to what are the scriptures, what is the Bible, as a result of her. Now, if you would have walked up to me from that moment up to about, oh, anywhere around, uh, you know, getting into my high school years, and you were to ask me, do you believe uh, in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God? Do you believe in, in him? I would have said, yes, I certainly do. I would give a very clear testimony of the same. In fact, I was asked that, and the church had a baptism. I went with my sister, and I got baptized, did the whole routine. The church accepted me, and I will tell you why I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Because my grandmother said so. She loved me. I was the firstborn of the generation. I was her firstborn grandchild. She loved me dearly. She spent time with me, and, and I knew she loved me. And she told me that's who God was. And there's absolutely no reason for me to dispute that, question that, or even be concerned about that. Believe me, if Grandma says that's who God is, that's who God is. But as I got a little older, I began to realize, you know, I'm not sure that's really going to work for me for very long. Because as I got around people of my own age and began to converse, we began to talk about it, I looked really stupid when I said, well, I believe it because my grandmother told me that. In my teen years, that didn't really fly real good. You know what I'm saying? And at coming to adulthood, can you imagine going around and say, well, do you believe in this? Yes, I believe in it. Why? Because my grandmother told me that. Or maybe you've had the occasion because my mother told me or my father told me. Or the preacher said that. Or my Sunday school teacher said that. Or your brother said that. Or somebody that cared for you. Somebody that wanted to truly help you. They're the ones who told you that. It's not because you sat down and read the scripture and made a judgment about this. Somebody told you this. But brethren, that's not a reason to believe in it. In fact, what you and I received when we did that is we heard hearsay. Somebody else said that. And by the way, even unbelievers know that hearsay does not qualify as evidence when it comes to establishing the truth. Go to a court and try to testify and say, well, so-and-so told me, and it will be ruled out. It doesn't even qualify as evidence. And it is not the path to truth. It's just opinion. And it doesn't even qualify as an evidence to establish the truth. Now, as I got older, maybe somebody didn't really say this to me so directly. I knew I needed something more than that for me to be able to say, I believe in Jesus. And so I determined that, well, what I need to do, because people were telling me that it's, you, you got to make the confession with your own mouth. You, you, you got to do it yourself. So I sat down and I assessed the situation and I got up my will 
And I made a decision. I said, I'm, this, this is what I'm going to believe, and I believe it. And that doesn't qualify either as a proof. Because the scripture clearly says that not by the will or the strength of the flesh does salvation come. And you know what? It was a long time after that before I ever met anybody who can tell me how in the world do you actually believe in the Messiah. In fact, I grew to adulthood, and I was around other people who believed in that, and we all congregated together. We all said the same thing. We all dressed the same way. We all did the same kinds of things. But I'm telling you, deep and down inside, if you'd sit down and ask those people, why do you believe that Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus, is the Christ, they were stumped. They didn't have a single reason. Some, later on, theologically, well, he fulfilled the prophecies. Which ones? Well, they couldn't seem to pinpoint any of them. They, they, they just didn't know. And it turns out that we got a lot of people running around in the faith. Heck, we might as well be communists. We're just spouting the party line. And oh, by the way, I've seen an awful lot of people who go around saying, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I believe, and so forth, and they run into a little bump in life, and all of a sudden their faith is absolutely worthless. It will not help them a bit because they don't have any. And I've watched lots of people. I bet you have too. I've watched lots of people where their faith just didn't work. Nothing to it. With that said, I want to take you down to John chapter 1. The, book, the, the writer of the Gospel of John writes the purpose of this book way back in chapter 20 at the conclusion. He said, I have written these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and that believing in him, you might receive eternal life. He said, that's the purpose of this book. We're going to teach you how to believe in God. And it's not going to be based on hearsay, and it's not going to be based upon because you decide to will yourself to do this. There's something far more powerful than that that is the basis of our faith. Let me read for you now from this chapter, and uh, this is how Yeshua's public ministry is first introduced to other men. Beginning at verse 35, if you want to follow along with me, John chapter 1. Again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist now, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Yeshua as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Yeshua. And Yeshua turned and saw them following, and he said, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see, you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Yeshua. Yeshua looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Yeshua said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Yeshua saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So let's summarize for a quick moment. This is the introduction of Yeshua to the brethren, and we're introduced to five Hebrew men. The first guy is John, the Apostle John, the guy that wrote this gospel. He's there. He's an eyewitness. He's recording for us what was said, what was done. And that John records for us there was another guy named Andrew. He runs off to get his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, we have found the Messiah. That's a pretty direct statement. And another guy named Philip, he runs off to get his friend. Nathaniel said, we have found him spoken of by Moses and the prophets. And they said, who is it? It's uh, Yeshua of uh, the son of Joseph. And of course, you saw the other questions, what they did. Let's ask a simple question here. Why do these five men believe they've found the Messiah? Yeshua hasn't done anything yet. He's not taught. He's not done a single miracle. He hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet. Hasn't healed anybody. Why do these five Hebrew men think they have found the Messiah? By the way, they really do believe they have found him. The story goes on because they, they want to follow him. And so they need the confirmation. You see, we Hebrews, if you get a fact to establish the truth, the scripture, the Torah teaches us, except by the evidence of two or three, you shall not call anything the truth. If your faith is going to be based on the truth, it's going to be true faith, then you have to get the confirming evidence. Now they go with him. Guess what happens? They go to Cana. There's a wedding. Yeshua was scheduled to go to it, but he's now bringing his additional disciples. He said, come on. Well, they get to the wedding. You know how weddings are. You know, there's a guest list, and they figure out how much food they got and for the party and all that. Well, Yeshua brought a couple extra guys, five guys, in fact. And uh, guess what? They ran out of wine. So to solve the wine problem, well, the burden was put on Yeshua that, uh, from his mother, could, could you help us out here? Could you get us some more wine? Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of how she knew that he could do this, but suffice it to say, she had a sense of what was going on, and she asked for his assistance. And sure enough, he turned water into wine. And John records for us in this gospel, this is the first sign that Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. Now, let me tell you what that means when he says that. This is a confirming sign that he is the Messiah they're looking for. Why is turning water into wine a sign that Yeshua is the Messiah? Let's go further. The gospel records a little bit later. They went on a trip with him. Now he is beginning to teach and he's healing people and things like that. And he comes back to Cana in Galilee. There's a man who lives in Capernaum. He's a father. His son is very ill. He has heard through the grapevine that this Yeshua can heal people. And so he's very concerned for his son, so he packs up, he travels from Capernaum and goes to Canaan. By the way, that's a full day journey. He goes there and he confronts Yeshua and he said, please come help my son who's very ill. Yeshua says something very interesting. He says this, unless this people see signs, they will not believe. And then he immediately says to him, your son lives. 
your son lives. That's it? Yeah, that's it. So he heads home. On the way home, here comes the servants from Capernaum coming to get him and joyously announcing, your son lives. He says, great. He says, when, when did the fever break? When, when did he become well? It was the seventh hour yesterday, the very hour. John says to him that Yeshua said, your son lives. Now John says, this is the second sign that Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. Why is that particular healing a confirming sign that he specifically, Yeshua of Nazareth, is the Messiah? Why is that a sign? Now we go, well, you know, lots of things are prophetic. But hang, hang with me for a second. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to challenge you a little bit here, okay? Because I'm getting ready to tell you how important this is in the preparation of what you're getting ready to face in these days. We have um, this statement of these five men. We have these two confirming evidences. And these men are now convinced that they have found the Messiah. And John is recording for you that this is the first evidence that if you want to find out about who the Messiah is and why you believe in him, this is the evidence that you need that will help you to believe in him. But you and I, you all know, we, we've read these verses before, and they don't somehow stand up and say to us uh, why we believe that he's the Messiah. In fact, I've even heard some teachers say, well, if you've got to have a sign, well, then you don't have much faith. And because we get a lot of preachers today who will go around and say, this is just a matter of faith. you just got to have faith. I submit to you making that statement is nothing short of presuming something to be true. And by the way, brethren, presumption is in no wise what faith is described in the Bible. If you flat out say, I'm going to go ahead and presume this, I'm just going to operate that I believe on, that is not faith. That is presumption. By the way, presumption is the playground of false teachers and false prophets. And if you presume things of God, you are set up for them to come in and hurt you. What you need is real evidence. What you need is the truth. Now, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because the topic that I want to share with you tonight is absolutely what is our greatest preparation that we've got to get ready for coming at the end. I'm, I actually qualified as a survival expert. I worked for the military. In logistics engineering, one of my specialties was survivability. I used to counsel the government on how to set up for the trans-attack scenario when the entire world goes hooves up and we're throwing nuclear weapons at each other. How to survive. I, I've had that training. And I've also taken other survival training courses to understand the dynamics of what, what is the science of survival. And I'm going to give you a real short course on basic survival, whether you want to go into the mountains whether you want to get through life, whatever the case, it's very simple. There's four basic things. Shelter, water, food, defense. Those are the four things. If you take a civilian survival course, they'll just mention the first three. But defense is definitely a necessary thing for survival. By the way, I've put them in rank order of their importance. Shelter, if you go up in those hills, shelter is your number one survival thing you must know about. If you get into an environment that is threatening your life, like hypothermia, too cool, uh, too hot, dehydration, other things like that. Without adequate shelter, you can die in two to three hours. Water, if you don't have water, you can die in two to three days. Food, you don't have food, you can die in two to three weeks. Do you see the priorities? Shelter is imminently more important. 
as in, a, in a real survival scenario. The entire end time scenario for the tribulation saints, I'm going to just cut to the chase and tell you some wonderful things that God has promised in his word for all of us as tribulation believers. He has promised to you, I will defend you. He has promised, I will provide you food. I know you need food. I will provide it. By the way, historically, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they ate manna, bread from heaven. God fed them. Do you know how much manna they needed each day? For the number of people we estimate there, I'm a logistics engineer. I can count the stuff. But it would have been a one-mile train, boxcars full of manna. That's what they need daily to live. Water, daily, for the number of people who went in that train would have been those big old tanker cars a mile and a half long. Just the firewood, just to heat the camp and, and cook your food, that would have been another train a mile long just for firewood. I don't remember anything about those trains being hauled out there into the wilderness to help those people. God was able to deliver his people in the wilderness by providing them defense, food, and water. But the one thing he did not provide them was a shelter. They, it was their responsibility. And in fact, the very first camping place they went to was called Sukkot. Sukkot, what does that mean? It means tabernacles, booths, huts, because the scripture says that's what they set up first. They came and set up their tents. They set up their booths and their huts. They provided their own shelter, and God took care of the other stuff. First priority is you have to set up that shelter. That's the reason why that we have the commandments of the Lord that tells us all about the Feast of Tabernacles. You know what you're really learning when you go to the Feast of Tabernacles? How to get your own shelter. Bring your own tent. Join the camp. And then the Lord takes care of everything else. But you've got to bring your tent. You've got to bring your booth, your hut, your shelter, your pop-up, your travel trailer, your RV, whatever. Bring your sukkah you know, to do it. And he's given us a commandment throughout the generations to teach us to do this because these are the keys to uh, survival. But let's go a step further, and this is going to tie back into what I'm trying to tell you about from John. What is the number one threat, though? And by the way, let me just tell you, survival experts, real survival experts, that's the first question they ask. What's the number one threat? Let's prepare by dealing with the number one threat. So given the great tribulation, the Antichrist, the judgments of God, um, all kinds of other people, unbelievers, chaos, anarchy, collapse of governments, what's the number one threat to you as a tribulation saint that's going to be in this area? What is the number one threat? Other people in the camp with you. Your brethren is the number one threat. Your brethren are going to be in a position that if they don't believe the Lord, they will kill you and your family. They will do dumb things. And that was the story of our ancestors in the wilderness. They kept rebelling from the Lord. They wouldn't do what the Lord said. And guess what? If you read through the whole Exodus, there's only two people out of that entire generation that made it in the promised land. The rest died. They got themselves in all kinds of trouble and did harm to them. They were constantly talking about, let's go back to Egypt. They were constantly turning away from the Lord, the one who's providing the manna and the water, and they were going for idols. Did you know that the scripture says that most of the Israelites that came out of Egypt, in their tents, in their sukkah, in the camp, hidden, guess what they had? Idols. Let me just go ahead and tell you straight up what the problem was. 
They didn't believe in God. Well, they, they, they'd like to be saved. Well, well, let's talk about that. In other words, I'm trying to tell you that the most important issue about the end time scenario is about your personal faith with God. You have got to really believe in the Lord. You cannot be faking this. You cannot be presuming this. And you cannot be basing this on hearsay. You need to know the same way that these five Hebrew men, while they know the Messiah, you need to know the Messiah that well. Because those men later went on to serve the Messiah and turn the world upside down. You need to have that kind of faith, true faith. It's not based on presumption, not based on hearsay, so that you can answer the question, why do you believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah? You have answers for this that come from in your heart, and you're not guessing anymore. By the way, that's the reason why this book was written, so that you can answer that question. I have written these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah, and that believing in him, you will have eternal life. Now, when I get to go to churches, and by the way, that's not very often, um, and I get a chance to, to share with my New Covenant brethren, I'm going to tell you the sermon I always teach. I poll the audience that is there, and I ask them, have you ever said, or have you heard it said recently by one of your brethren, um, you know, I'm just not getting fed there. Uh, I'm just not satisfied. I, I, I can sense that just something not quite there, not quite right. I'm still thirsty. I'm, I'm still kind of in a looking mode. I'm uh, just not there. When I poll audiences like that, and I ask them for a show of hands, virtually every hand will go in the air. They have heard people say this. They themselves have said that. And so then I pose this question. Yeshua said that he was a piece of bread that if you ate of him, you would never be hungry again. He said that he was a drink, that if you drank of him, you would never be thirsty again. So let's go ahead and ask the question. Did the Messiah kind of like oversell himself just a little bit? He's, he's not quite that good. I mean, he's pretty good, but he's not that good. Or is it more likely you've never eaten the bread and you've never drank the cup yet? You've been walking around with a whole bunch of Christians. We're all looking at each other and we're saying, well, I'm Christian, you're Christian. That don't mean you make you a believer. That's not true faith. That's just you all going along with the crowd like a bunch of lemmings ready for the slaughter. Well, brethren, I got news for you. When we come to the great tribulation, God is going to sort out who believes and who doesn't believe. In fact, it says he's going to hang a plumb line. And he's going to find out who's righteous and who's not. Who's faking it and who's the real thing. And you're going to be put to the test. You're going to get squeezed, and we're going to find out what really is inside of you. That's exactly what he said about our ancestors when they came out of Egypt. I suffered you to be hungry. I suffered you to thirst, so that I might teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God does a man live. They were put to the test. And oh, by the way, I have news for you. The tribulation saints, it's specifically prophesied, you are going to be put to the exact same ten tests that was put to those, that generation. Now, let me tell you what the success rate is so far on this test. <laughs> Two guys made it in the promised land, and neither one of those was Moses or Aaron. You know why Moses didn't get to go to the promised land? 
He went there and struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock and tried to get the water. He got angry with the brethren. And God said, that's it. You're not going to the promised land. Why? Because you do not believe me. What? Moses doesn't believe the Lord. This is the guy that talks to God at the burning bush. This is the guy that goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments. And God is saying, you didn't believe me. Whoa. What did you think believing God was? Because Moses didn't qualify. He died in the wilderness. If you're going to go into the promised land, you're going to get through this little transition here and walk in the promised land. I guarantee you, you're going to walk in because you believe. Not because you just hang out with believers and you hope by osmosis some of that believing stuff will rub off on you. I can show you the scripture where it says that the people who go into this camp and be saved, God is going to meet with you face to face. You are going to pass under the rod directly, personally with him. And you're not going forward unless he really knows you and you know him. Now let's answer the question. How in the world, what is being shared here that tells me why they believe? The first answer comes to you in the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What did those men hear? Hearsay? Did they hear hearsay? No, they did not hear hearsay. Who is John the Baptist? He's a Levite priest. He's the son. Did you know that the Torah, the law of Moses, the word of God says that if you're going to bring a sacrifice before the Lord, unless a Levite priest certifies that it is a sacrifice, it is not a sacrifice to the Lord. It's just another lamb or bull or goat or whatever. It doesn't become a sacrifice according to the law, until the priest certifies it is the sacrifice. We watched men who believe in the law of God, the commandments of Moses, and a Levite priest just certified the Lamb of God. Which sacrifice? Where did that promise come from? This is from the very promise of Abraham. Abraham, when he took Isaac up and God told him, sacrifice your son, give him back to me. And Abraham, by faith, obeyed the word of God. And followed what he said. As he was taking him up, Isaac happened to take note of, Father, <laughs> we have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife, where's the sacrifice? That's when Abraham said those incredible words. The Lord will provide for himself the lamb in that place. Now, as you all know, that when Yeshua came forth, he had been declared to be the lamb of God, that he got taken to the same place that Isaac was taken by Abraham. And the Lord did provide the lamb in that place. And you know from the story of Abraham that Isaac was spared from death. He was lifted off the altar. And instead, a, a ram that had got its head caught in some thorns, that was the one that was actually the sacrifice. And when Yeshua went into that same place, his head was caught in thorns, just like Abraham showed it. He fulfilled and did exactly what Abraham had promised. Here's a Levite priest quoting and making reference to the promise of Abraham. These men know that story. So they realized, oh my goodness, this is the word of the Lord. By the way, the word of the Lord is evidence. It's not presumption. It's not hearsay. Nothing that God says is anything short of the truth. So when you make reference to his word, you're now talking about the truth. And the prophecies 
and the things that have been shown to us, those are the evidences of the works of God. Yeshua was once asked very directly, John chapter 5, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? You know what he said? If I say it of myself, it is not true. I must have the evidence of two or three. And I do have the evidence, but it's not the evidence of men. It is the evidence of God. What we have in this gospel account is the specific acts and evidences of God. These are not the opinions of men. These have nothing to do with other judgments that men make. They are direct evidences of the work and the word of God. Now, more in particular, uh, we go to um, the Cana thing. And the first thing that we have is we have uh, Yeshua turning water into wine. Again, why is that a, a sign that he specifically is the Messiah? Well, it goes back to what we have learned earlier from the teaching of Moses. Do you remember Moses was at the burning bush? God is commissioning him to go to the children of Israel, go to them, and lead them out from Pharaoh and from Egypt. Moses asked a very good question. He said, why would the people believe me? If I'm going to go and tell the brethren, hey, it's time to leave, uh, who the heck am I? that I should go and, and tell Pharaoh this or the people that. Very good question. God answered him and said, Moses, I'm going to give you signs. You will show these signs and the people will believe. The first sign I'm going to give you is you have the power to change water into blood. By the way, changing water into blood or water into wine, to us Hebrews, it means exactly the same thing. Blood, wine means life. That's the symbol of life. And so Yeshua came doing the exact same sign that Moses did when he was dispatched from the mountain to bring the message of salvation and deliverance to his people. Yeshua came from the really big mountain, heaven. And he has come doing the exact same sign that God gave to Moses. So what was that second one? When he went to Capernaum and the distraught father. The second sign that God gave to Moses was that he could do instant healing. He could put his hand into his cloak, it would become leprous. He could put his hand back in his cloak again, perfectly clean, instantly healed. By the way, leprosy is a really grievous disease, very unclean. And he could prove he could do it instantly. So what is it about this miracle of the distraught father and his son who's in Capernaum and he's still in Cana? What, how does that happen? Because Yeshua, when he is facing the father, he simply said, your son lives. He wasn't even in Capernaum. He didn't take no dust, spit in it, rub it, put it in his eye. None of that. He didn't even do what a doctor did. I mean, he didn't even come in and say, well, let me listen to his heart first. He just said the words, your son lives. And as you know, at the very instant that he said that, as best as they could understand time, his son lived. He was well. And we have that testimony. And John is telling you, and, and remember, Yeshua said, unless this people see signs, they will not believe. And he gave the signs so they would believe. Now, there's a very intriguing part of that particular story. And the phrase, your son lives, that really would have rung in the ears of those Hebrew men. To know about that, I have to take you back to the story of Joseph and his brethren and his father Jacob. It's something that is understood and known by Hebrews, by people who have studied the Torah, but the actual words are not actually written. 
It has to do with this part. You know that Joseph, when he was dispatched by his father to see to the welfare of the flock and the welfare of his brethren, that that's a micro picture of how our Heavenly Father was going to send His Son down to us to see to the welfare of us and the flock. And that His brethren who rejected Him cast Him into a pit, sold Him, got rid of Him, that it's exactly the prophecies of what happened to the Messiah. That the Messiah did come to us, was rejected by His brethren, sold for a price, and put into a pit. They buried Him. Now Joseph came up out of that pit and ended up going to Egypt. And oh, by the way, Yeshua got up out of that pit, and he went somewhere else. Now, Joseph ended up, when his brethren see him again, he's in charge of the world. I mean, he's the viceroy of Egypt. And the whole world is coming to Egypt to get bread in his day. By the way, I have news for you. All my brethren eventually are going to find out that Yeshua, he too is in charge of the whole world when the next time they see him. Just like Joseph. Now, When the brethren came to buy bread, to buy grain, so that they might live, you know, Joseph played a little game with them, a little bit coy, and he was bringing out so that they would have to be confronted and be reconciled to him. And eventually they were. And you know that the story they told Jacob, their father, about what had happened, they'd taken his tunic and torn it and put blood on it and had walked up to Jacob, and instead of saying, well, Joseph is dead... Why they had just laid the thing out in front of him and said, do you recognize this? And Jacob, of course, had just jumped to the conclusion, oh my goodness, Joseph had been eaten by a wild animal. Look, his cloak has been torn, shredded, there's blood everywhere. Looks like a wild animal probably carried his body and drug his body off. And so there's no sense in us sending out search parties. He's probably eaten and gone. Can you imagine a parent getting the news that their child has been eaten by an animal? Wow. In fact, the scripture tells us that it almost put Jacob in the grave right there. I mean, it brought him down low. And they, the brethren, they saw the harm they had done to their father. By the way, who was it that came up with this brilliant plan? Judah. You know, everybody was saying, Simeon was saying, let's kill him. Reuben was saying, no, 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 let's not kill him. He's trying to figure out how he's going to save him, but he's a coward to his brethren. And Judah said, no, 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 let's make a buck on this. What do you think? <laughs> so they sold him for... 20 pieces of silver. It turns out that 20 pieces of silver later on, God's going to remember that value. That will become the coins of redemption and the redemption of the firstborn. Five shekels. Those are the coins of redemption. By the way, the same ones that Mary and Joseph came and paid for Yeshua the first time they went in the temple. The same price that their brothers had valued for Joseph. Same value. Now, the brethren are confronted with Joseph. And they realized, oh my goodness, he's alive. We thought he died. But why would they think he died? I mean, they saw him come out of the pit. They knew he went to Egypt. They never thought that going down to Egypt a bunch of years later that there's any possibility of seeing Joseph. No, they, that just thought that just never entered their mind. My Jewish brethren know for a fact, and I've talked to rabbis about this, they know that Yeshua of Nazareth did come out of the grave. They know he was resurrected. I have had much dialogue with many Jewish rabbis about this, but they don't care where he went. Just like our brethren when they treated Joseph. We know he came out of the pit, but we don't care where he went. Of course, you and I, we know he went to the right hand of the Almighty. He's getting ready to come back here. And when he comes back, they're going to be in shock. I didn't know you were alive. Well, what do you mean you didn't know he was alive? You saw him come out of the grave. You know he came out of the grave. Where did you think he went? They just haven't really thought it through. Why? Because they're repeating the story of Joseph with the brethren. 
They're repeating the same story. Did you know the Gospel of John starts off with that? Did you know that if you go to a Jewish rabbi and say, show me the first verse of the story and the teaching of redemption in the Bible, do you know what verse they're going to tell you to go to? Genesis 37, 12, the start of the story when Jacob sends Joseph out to sea to the welfare of the brethren. If you go eat a Passover Seder, the cup of instruction, we will start with that verse and with that teaching. The definition of redemption to all Jews, to all Hebrews, originates from the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph reveals himself to the brethren. You know, you know, they caught Benjamin with the cup and they bring him back. And Judah is, oh my goodness, I'm in, I'm in charge of this. And I, I committed to my father, I'd bring Benjamin back. Now Benjamin's on. And, and, and he's offering himself for the first time. He, it's a picture of redemption. He's offering to pay the price so that Benjamin go back. Why? Because if Benjamin doesn't go back, Jacob will surely die this time. For the love of his father, Judah offers himself. Joseph, he can't hold it back anymore. He weeps and he announces, I am Joseph, your brother. Praise God. Praise God. The whole family's united. Praise God. Except for one part. Who's going to go back and tell Jacob? The Jews ask this question. Torah teachers ask this question. Who told Jacob and how did he tell him? The duty fell upon Judah. He's the one that came up with that stupid story about the tunic and so forth. So Judah, you got to do it. So you know what they say that Judah did? He walked into Jacob's tent when they walked back and he said these words. Your son lives. These are the words that Yeshua used to the distraught father when he thought his son was going to be dead. That's the reason why John records for you three times this phrase, your son lives. If you know the Torah, if you've paid attention to the teaching, if you believe in the word of God, I'm telling you there are no more powerful words that can be said to your heart that is the story of redemption. This is the Redeemer, and he knows exactly how to present himself to people who are looking for the redemption of God with a simple message of, your son lives. And you see Jacob receiving the joyous news. Now, there's one other sign that Moses got. That was Moses' staff. Moses was able to take this staff and throw it down on the ground. It would become a serpent. He could pick up the bottom of it, and it came right back to his staff. He used this in confronting Pharaoh. You remember the first time he did that, why Pharaoh brought out his magicians. And by the way, this is a well-known trick in the Middle East. You can take a, an adder, uh, you take him uh, by the tail, and you whip him around in the air like this, and you fill his head full of blood, and he passes out. And he becomes straight as a stick. And you walk with a snake in like a stick. And you plop him down on the ground, you wait a few moments, let the blood kind of rush out of his head, and all of a sudden he's a snake again. So, Moses takes his staff, a stick, throws it down on the ground, and the magicians of Egypt, they do the same thing. Only nobody ever seen this happen. Moses' snake eats the other two stakes and then becomes a stick again. Well, that was pretty impressive. But that wasn't the sign that Yeshua did, though. Instead, what Yeshua told the disciples all through his ministry, when you see the Son of Man lifted up like Moses' staff in the wilderness, you will see I am. Now, your Bibles say things like, I am he. If you look in your Bible, check, the word he is in italics. It tells you that the word he is not in any of the original manuscripts. In the original manuscripts, it just says, you will see I am. 
And it's translators who are trying to make sense of this because they're not believing what they heard that Moses did at the burning bush when he got this staff. Because Moses asked God, Whom shall I say to the sons of Israel have sent me? What, what is your name? You remember God's answer? You will say to the sons of Israel, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. Yeshua said, when you see the Son of Man lifted up like Moses' staff in the wilderness, you will see I am. So when Yeshua was lifted up on the cross, lifted up on the stick, they put a sign above him. You've heard about this. Pilate wrote this sign in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and uh, Latin. And it essentially said, Yeshua of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, the words you would have read are Yeshua HaNetzaret Vemelech HaYeodim. There are four Hebrew words there. The first letter of those four Hebrew words is Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. That was the name God gave to Moses that said, This is my memorial name. This is the I Am God. This is my name. We say Yahweh or Yahuwah or Jehovah or whatever pronunciation you prefer, that name. Moses was the first one to get, even Abraham didn't know that name. And here is this up on this sign. And we Hebrews, we have this thing called the acrostics. We believe that God is so powerful and so wise that he can take a piece of Hebrew text, take the first letter off of each word, and give you a secret message from God. And when they put that sign up there, the religious leaders freaked out. And they went to Pilate and said, change the sign. Write it any way different that you want. Change those words. Don't put both words up. You know why? Because any Hebrew looking at it would go, oh my goodness, the, the first letters, this is Yahweh. This is yod heh vav -Hey. By the way, that's exactly what Yeshua said you would see. You will see I am on the cross, lifted up, like Moses' staff. And that's the reason why the gospel recorded for you. They got very upset about that. Now, that's just a couple of little minor evidences. But I've given you three specific evidences that proves that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. And any Hebrew Jew who knows the Torah knows instantly what those mean. Now, because most of the people in the world have never been taught the Torah, they don't know the teachings of Moses. These words go past you in the New Testament like yawn. What in the world is that? You see, faith and belief really comes from hearing, hearing the Word of God. They don't come from miracles and what you see with your eyes. Oh, he, did, he fulfilled prophecies, he did miracles. No, it's the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God and seeing the Word of God in terms of how Yeshua fulfilled the Word of God. In fact, in this study that I do here in John, we go through verse by verse because every incident recorded by John in this gospel is one of the evidences. And John says there were way more evidences. If In fact, if I'd have written everything, there, there is not enough books in the world that could have explained everything he said and did because everything he said and did was exactly what the prophecy calls for in the Word of God that the Messiah will do. You remember John the Baptist, that guy that started this whole thing? Remember when he was coming to the edge of his life? He's kind of wavering there for a moment. So he sent one of his disciples to Yeshua and he said, are, are you the expected one or should we look to another? And Yeshua said, 
send this word back to John. Tell him that the blind see, the lame walk, and the leper is cleansed, and the gospel is preached. Man, you couldn't have said a more powerful set of words. You see, because this has all been discussed and talked about, us Hebrews looking at all the prophecies and said, we know the Messiah is going to be able to make a blind man see, but what, you know, a doctor can do that, but that doesn't make you the Messiah. And sometimes miracles happen, but that doesn't necessarily make you the Messiah. What is it about him giving sight to a man that's blind that would be a sign that he's definitely the Messiah? Here's what they concluded. It would have to be a man that was born blind, who never had the eyeball, the optic nerve, never had the tissue. It never worked. And that when the Messiah would come and do that miracle to give sight to somebody, it would have to be somebody born blind. It would have to be a true work of God with the power of the creation of tissue. Yeshua came and what did he do? He gave sight to men that were born blind. Not like any doctor has ever done. He would have to heal a, a lame man who was born lame. He never had the bone or the muscle tissue that ever worked. He would have to create it all right there and heal the man whole right there. Yeshua did that. By the way, leprosy, it's incurable. When people get leprosy, the leprosy we're talking about in the Bible, it disfigures them. Your, your nose falls off your face. Big open lesions and sores form and it tears away the tissue of your... You lose your fingers. They become infected and they fall off. You lose your toes. Eventually it kills you. Not only did Yeshua cleanse lepers, he cleansed a whole bunch of them. Did you know that in the law, the law of the cleansing of the leper is the most elaborate temple procedure in all of the scriptures? And the, the, the sages have asked the question, why did Moses give us so much instruction about the cleansing of a leper, the temple procedure, to bring them back in, to restore them within the camp and the community. Why, why did he give us this elaborate procedure? Man, you've got to have two turtle bows. You've got to have some cedar wood. You've got to have some hyssop. It's a one-week-long procedure. You know, all kinds of stuff. And the conclusion was this, that it's so dramatic that when the Messiah comes into the land of Israel, the first sign that will be in the temple that the Messiah is in the land will be lepers will be coming that are cleansed. So when Yeshua cleansed the lepers, what did he say to them? Go to the priest and be a testimony to them. He was doing exactly what the prophecy said. He was doing the works of God. So there would be no doubt in anyone's mind, this is not the deeds of a man. These are the works of God that are taking place. And they were numerous and specific and when Yeshua came, do you remember what they said of the words that he said? Where did this man get his learning? He doesn't speak like a scribe or a Pharisee. He's beyond them. When he came and he spoke of the Torah, he talked of the Torah beyond the level of any man had ever talked of the Torah because the, the Messiah is to be the greatest Torah teacher of them all. He came and taught that Torah. Did he teach the commandments of free men like the scribes did and the Pharisees did? No. He came teaching a part of the Torah they don't teach about. He came teaching the commandments of servants. And in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, when he teaches the Torah to you, he was saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The difference of what he's talking about is not about commandments of free men. He's talking about commandments of servants. Let me explain the difference to you. You all know the law, eye for eye, 
Uh, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, life for life. That's the law. In bad effect, he quotes that. But he turns around and he says other things, things you haven't heard. Because you have not gone back to the Torah to see really what Moses taught about the law. Let me tell you what he said about servants about that commandment. Eye for eye, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, life for life. But if the man is a servant, he shall be set free. So God was talking about, Yeshua was talking about not just eye for eye. He was talking about being set free. He was talking about the commandments of servants. Why? Because he said this. Do all of these things to show yourselves the servants of my Father. He taught Torah on a whole nother level that the scribes and Pharisees had never taught to the people. He truly was the greatest Torah teacher that we've ever had. I, I got I to tell you, just a little parenthetical interruption here. It just blows my mind <laughs> when I hear New Covenant brethren who believe in Yeshua is the Messiah and go around saying that Yeshua came for the purpose to do away with the Torah. That blows my mind. Can I tell you what I think is the greatest irony in the world? The greatest irony in the world is Christians who believe that Yeshua is the Messiah have the best evidence to prove that he's not. And my rabbi brethren who do not believe that he is the Messiah, they have the best evidence to prove that he is. It comes down to a case of instead of following after a stereotype, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Let's look at the evidence. What does the evidence say? Believe that. Believe the truth. And you'll know who it is. Yeshua said the same thing in John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. Had you believed Moses, you would have believed in me. In fact, what he was inferring was, you guys don't believe in Moses. That's the reason why you've got a problem with me. And if you do not believe the words of Moses, how will you believe my words? i got a question that I like to ask all my new covenant brethren. If you don't believe the words of Moses, how in the world do you believe the words of Yeshua? Because Yeshua said, you can't believe him without believing those words first. By the way, I just demonstrated to you. You cannot believe that he is the Messiah unless you believe the testimony of Moses, who is the greatest prophet of the Messiah. You do anything short of that, you are presuming your faith and you're listening to hearsay. Brethren, let me tell you something. When we get to the great tribulation, you ain't making it. Do you know one of the great prophecies that we have that's supposed to happen right here? Paul told us about it. He said it's called the great falling away, the apostasy. People you think are believers will suddenly quit the faith. They will leave. I submit to you that the reason why they will fall away is they never believed to begin with. They were simply doing what somebody told them to do, or they simply were willing themselves into that position. They don't know why he's the Messiah. <laughs> they don't have any evidence for it. I want to share a testimony with you that was shared with me that was the, the big difference for me. I admit to you that as a young man, I believed that Jesus was the Messiah because my grandma told me that. God bless her soul. And later on, I kind of willed myself into it. I, I tried to, I presumed certain things about God. And I didn't understand what the scripture said. I just, I, I said, I think this is right. I'm going to believe it. But there came a time, thank goodness, and when the Lord got a hold of me, I was um, in the Navy. I was in the Vietnam War. I was stationed at Naval Air Station Miramar the day the Vietnam War came to a conclusion and the prisoners of war from Vietnam came back to the United States. I stood on a corner that day and I saluted John McCain when he came back. I knew it was John McCain. I knew he was the son of an admiral. I had no idea he was going to be a senator one day. But I saluted him the day he came back and all the other POWs that came back. 
they took all those guys down to Balboa Hospital there in San Diego and check them out, see if they're healthy or well or whatever they needed to do. And it was about two weeks after that that one of those men, his name is Commander Thornton. I've never met the man. One day, if he's still alive, I'd love to meet him. But he came back up to the base where we were at two weeks later, and they invited him to the officer's club, and he spoke that night and gave his testimony of what it was like to be a prisoner of war in Vietnam, in the Hanoi Hilton. And he, it, it, was, a, it was a presentation of about two hours. I wasn't actually there, but I got to listen to the cassette tapes that another man was there recorded, and he gave them to me, and he's incredible. He says, you've got to hear this. And yes, we heard all kinds of interesting stories, you know, uh, harrowing things of torture and, and uh, great concern, and, and, and then finally the story about how he ended up actually getting to come back. Here's, here's what he shared right at the end. He said um, he'd been there six and a half years. And uh, the North Vietnamese, they got this new major in, a new interrogating officer, been trained by the Red Chinese. And they brought him in, and he's been very well trained. And they brought him in to a room with a table and a couple of chairs, and they sat him down. And the major kind of did the, the thing where he pulls his gun out of his holster, and he puts it on the table, and he says... Um, I'm going to ask you one question. I'm going to give you 24 hours to figure out what the answer is. And I demand from you an answer. And if you do not answer me, I will take this gun and I will blow your head off. He said, the question is, why would your God permit you to become my prisoner? They picked him up. They took him right into isolation. 24 hours. Nothing. He says in his testimony, he said, in that 24 hours, I suffered more then in six and a half years, it was just me. He said, he looked down inside of himself and he said, there was nothing. Zip, nada. There's nothing in there. He's a shell of a man. 24 hours later, right to, the, right to the moment, they came and got him. They drug him down that hallway. He says that I was looking at the light coming through the window, streaming on the floor of the table of the chair, and I'm realizing these are the, only, these are the last things I'm going to see and be alive. I'm going to be dead in a matter of moments. They convinced him. They sat him down. Here comes the major. Gun on the table. I asked you a question yesterday. I demand an answer from you today. Why would your God permit you to become my prisoner? He said at that moment, his mouth opened and began to speak, and he was inside listening. His mouth said to tell you about Jesus Christ. Major said, I don't want to talk to this man anymore. Get him out of here. They hauled him out. He can't walk. He's inside. <laughs> Like that. He said, but something incredible happened. He said, all of a sudden, inside of him, he, he, all I could sense was this incredible light. And it just filled every part of him. And he said, at that moment, it hit him. He said, I'm going to go home. God's going to save me. It just overwhelmed him at that moment. 30 days later, he was on the airplane coming back to the United States to have Monty Judah salute him. Here's what he said. And these are the words I have never forgotten. He said, gentlemen, before you take the oath, before you get the military haircut, before you put the uniform on, before you get jet training, and God forbid, before you decide to fly over enemy territory to get shot down and taken prisoner, you better find out who you are and who do you believe in. Because I'm here to tell you that when the enemy gets his hands on you, he's going to take away your name, your family, your country your clothes, 
your dignity, your self-respect, and everything that you call you. And if you don't have something deep down inside there that he just can't take away from you, you are going to die. i got to tell you something. I was a Christian. I was involved in the Navigator Ministries. At that particular point in my life, I had led more men to the Lord than I could count. I had committed to memory at least 2,000 Bible verses. I had studied virtually every book of the Bible. I was stable in the faith. You'd be hard-pressed to find a young man more committed to the Lord than I was. But I'll tell you what I did. I looked down inside of me and I went, Are you in there, God? Who am I? And who do I believe in? And I said, God, I need you to fill me with yourself. There can't be any more vacancies. I've got to know you really are God. And I've got to believe in you. Help me, oh God. I've been on a journey ever since. And I'll tell you what the Lord led me to do. I'm going to teach you the scriptures that nobody ever taught you. I'm going to take you back to when God got introduced at the creation. You're going to learn me as creator first. Then you're going to learn that I'm the God that makes covenants with men. You're going to find out about your father, Abraham. And I'm going to prove to you that you're one of his descendants. And the promises I made to him are the promises I made to you. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I don't care if you're even a saint that lives at the end of the age. I will prove to you once and for all, I am the living God. That's what I've been on a journey to do. A lot of you are confronted right now in your messianic faith. You're making the transition from New Covenant brethren, being in the church, and you're wrestling with all of these things about how do you explain to your family about the Sabbath and kosher, and, and they all think you've joined a cult, you know, and lost your mind. And it, by the way, it is true that you do pray toward the east, you light candles, you dance in circles, and you pay attention to the moon phases, but you're not in a cult. <laughs> and your family's freaking out because you've been telling them that a Christmas tree is an idol. When somebody asks you, what do you believe in? I have a new answer for you. Don't start talking about Sabbath and keeping the commandments of Moses and the Torah and all that. Now answer their question, what do you believe in? I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God of the prophets of Israel, the God who is the Messiah of Israel, the King of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, the Son of the living God. That's who I believe in. What do I do? I keep his commandments. That's the answer. You've got to get to the point that that's your answer. If you don't do that, none of this means anything to you. And it's not going to save you. God is going to save you. The one you believe in. He's going to do it. The scripture says at the end, we will all say together, salvation to our God. That's what we're going to say together. Nobody's ever going to say, well, you know, I paid attention to Monty, and he told us we ought to get ready for this thing. And so I stored up some MREs, got my gun ready, got my suka ready, and God and I, we pulled it off. <laughs> You're going to say, salvation to my God. He did it. And the reason why he's going to do it is because you believed in him, and you paid attention to what he said, and you did what he said. And you walked before him like others. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. Moses. And those who believed. And you will not be left in the wilderness. You all will walk into the promised land. Now here's the really incredible thing about this whole prophecy. This is the part that really blows me away. 
You know, the last time that God decided to judge the whole world, you know, only eight people made it. That was the, the family of Noah and his, his sons in the flood. And the last time he judged the generation, you, you've heard it, two made it, Joshua and Caleb. The scripture says this time at the end of the Great Tribulation, do you know how many people get saved in the Great Tribulation? Um, in Revelation chapter 7, it says, um, they ask this question, who are all these people? Who are all these tribulation saints? And here's what they said of them. There were so many of them, no man could number them. That's how many people in the tribulation are going to get saved. They're going to make it all the way through. No man could number them. That's a pretty fantastic number because John saw a 200 million man army and he could count them. So I know the number is greater than 200 million. It's greater than that. In fact, the prophecy says that in these days of the Great Tribulation, it will be the greatest salvation in the entire history of the entire world. It won't be everybody, though. There's a whole lot of people who don't know how to answer the question, why do you believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah? Yeshua talked about him. He said, there's a whole lot of people who are going to be calling me Lord, Lord, that will not be entering the kingdom. And they'll say, Lord, but we did so many things. We, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all kinds of things in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, ye who are Torah-less. That's the actual literal translation of the scripture. If you don't have Torah and the commandments of the Lord, then you don't know the Lord. You don't know who this God is. And you haven't listened to his word. And you haven't done that. And you don't know him. You better start believing in the Lord. He's not kidding. He's not playing a game. This is for real. So let's get real. And let's start living and doing what God wants us really to do. And let's stop with the religious appearances, and let's start believing. Maybe you don't believe what I've been telling you. That's okay. But you're not leaving this room tonight not knowing that I believe it, because I do. And I'm not kidding with you. I'm exhorting you to look down inside of you, and you better get the Lord in there, big time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for this assembly and all the brethren that are here. Let no one leave from this assembly night, Lord, that does not go home, does not have that moment with himself in which he doesn't look down inside of him and ask where you're at. We know, Lord, that your gift of salvation and deliverance is free. We know that you're ready to give it to us. Any moment we'll turn to you. You have said to us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and delivered. That's all we have to do is ask for you. Help us, Lord, to stop playing religion, stop playing Christianity, and start becoming believers and descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the recipients of your wonderful and gracious promises. Help us, O oh God, in our unbelief. Let us be able to answer that question directly and correctly. We ask it in the name of Yeshua of Nazareth, our Messiah. Amen. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio.